Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban <laughs> was written by J.K. Rowling and was published in the UK and in the US in 1999. In the film... Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> Gotta say the whole thing. Yes. Uh, was directed by Alfonso Cuaron and came out in 2004. And we're on to the third one. Yes. I'm, yeah. So this is, I'm I'm so excited to talk about this one. Uh, namely, because this one really shakes things up a lot. Oh, yeah. And that's in large part because of the directing change. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron, he is a really well-known filmmaker now. Uh, Films he's made since uh, Prisoner of Azkaban have been Gravity, Children of Men, which is my all-time favorite movie. We did an episode on that, if you're interested in, you know, hearing more about this director. Uh, And Roma, Mm -hmm. which had a lot of buzz recently on Netflix. Yeah. And But when this movie was being made, the only other film he had done he's a mexican uh director the only other film he had done was e2 mama tambien and also a little princess oh really okay um i guess really e2 mama tambien was like what he was like known for yeah at this point and it's like a sexy coming of age kind of um road trip story road trip yeah yeah so totally different type of movie (laughs) and so everyone was like that guy Like, are you sure that's who we want to be making a Harry Potter film? A children's movie? Yeah. Um, But so, you know, he just really changed things up a lot in a lot of different ways, brought a different viewpoint to the films and everything. So I was really excited to talk about this one from an adaptation standpoint. And I think in terms of the book, too, we're definitely getting into emotionally deeper waters in terms of the Harry Potter series. Um, You could almost say the first two books are kind of standard mystery novels, even though they're set in this magical world. I feel like that formula is definitely shaken up a bit in this one because there are some mystery elements, but it's less about like the clues that they find along the way and more about like these very different characters and the changes that are happening to, you know, Harry and his friends are getting older. They're 13 now. Yeah. And in fact, that's something we kind of like realized talking about the last episode was like Chamber of Secrets is very much like this mystery, like almost a murder mystery plot line. Yeah. And that's kind of like the entirety of the story. Yeah. You know what I mean? The characters don't go through much in terms of like emotional arcs or anything like that. No. Um, But this story really kind of refocuses and kind of uh, definitely has a different tone and feel. And uh, you get a lot more out of it in that regard, I think. So yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's a big shift, not only in the movies, but uh, also in the books. I did read Chris Columbus, who directed the first two movies, had signed on to do all of them. Oh, my God. I know. He only made it through two. (laughs) Two out of seven isn't too bad. Uh, But he had said that, like, yeah, he's like, I was interested in doing all of them. But then I also wanted to watch my children grow up. (laughs) So he decided to end after Chamber of Secrets. I mean, he stayed on as an executive producer, so still involved in the production um, in this movie and in future movies as well. But... Um, yeah, it was really cool, I think, to see 
the tone shift. So let's let's start talking about it. Let's yeah. start out with something that doesn't feel new at all, which is here we are in with Harry and the Terrible Summers, <laughs> as Ian and I want our spinoff to be called. <laughs> yes. What is Harry doing all summer? Uh, there is one little minor gripe I want to get out of the way at the very beginning. Yeah. And that is the first thing in the movie we see is Harry doing his Lumos spell under yeah. the blankets. And I'm not big on being like, uh, well, actually, in the book, like, or he's not allowed to do that. Uh, but it's kind of a significant thing. Considering that both in the book and in the movie, it's brought up multiple p- times that you're not allowed to do magic when you're not in school. Yeah. And Harry could go to wizard jail because <laughs> of it, or he thinks that he will. Um, yeah. The fact that he's doing a Lumos spell. Like, do Lumos spells not count because they're like a flashlight? I don't know. Or does, like, someone have to see him do the magic? Or does there, does there have to be evidence of it? I mean, we know from the books that's not true. Yeah. We know from the books that, like, they just can detect if magic is done. Uh, I guess that hasn't been established in the movies. So no. maybe it's just they're kind of going by the fact that, like, evidence yeah there's evidence needed so i'm not entirely sure but the fact that this is a plot point in this very movie like 10 minutes later that makes this bullshit not allowed to do magic i'm a little like uh (laughs) this probably could have been left out exactly uh but yeah so harry's home and his terrible horrible um also fat aunt comes to visit aunt marge aunt marge and this felt very out of place in this book because like I was saying this feels like a a more emotionally mature story yeah so to have us go back to the beginning kind of of like the first Harry Potter in this like bizarre like Roald Dahl type like slapstick-y like scene and especially you know we talked about this in the first episode especially like the fat shaming aspect like made me really uncomfortable Um, especially not just with Aunt Marge, but with Dudley specifically, it just, it was like very over the top and very uncomfortable and I did not like reading it. No, it was just like, it felt so just repetitive and just kind of so cringy. And the scene of him blowing up his aunt, um, you know, she's terrible. She's talking trash on Harry's parents and he just kind of loses control. And this also felt like out of place because like he's been in wizard school for two years now. Yeah. He shouldn't just be like accidentally exploding people. Yeah. <laughs> he should probably at least have that part under control. He should have a lid on that. Yeah. And this is like some straight up Willy Wonka shit here. Like Aunt Marge is turning into a blueberry basically um, in front of our eyes and floating up into the sky. The movie kind of makes this into more of like a set piece where... Vernon is trying to like hold on to her as she's floating up and the dog is on him and it's very funny. The actor who plays Vernon is so good in all of his comedic. Yeah, I love him. He does such an excellent job uh, just being the butt of the joke, I think. Yeah, and it is a funny scene, but I felt like this this whole kind of bit was a little bit old and tired yeah. for this movie There was in this book. Yeah, there was something interesting though in the movie was that like right off the bat, Film, like, with shots within the house, they're all done handheld. Yeah. And it's kind of, like, very shaky. And it feels like it adds to the feeling of kind of, like, the house being small. Yeah. And the way it's filmed almost feels like it could be, like, a, like an indie drama, like, set in this <laughs> tiny house. And it's, like, immediately, I think, right off the bat. And this is something that doesn't, like, necessarily continue. I think there are maybe other handheld shots later on. But um, I think this is the where it's the most obvious 
And so I think right away, this movie feels different. Like, you immediately get a different kind of tone and feeling from the way it's filmed and, you know, the techniques being used. Definitely. Uh, Harry runs away because he knows he's not supposed to do magic. He's on the ru- <laughs> on the run from the law. Exactly. And he gets a ride from the night bus, which is basically like... I guess drunk wizards call the night bus when they need someone to take them home because they can't apparate safely home. It's wizard Uber. Basically. Yeah. But you don't have an app. You just raise your wand in the air. Ian and I have talked about this in other episodes. Like how many modes of transportation do wizards need? I know. (laughs) Like they can apparate. So like, why do they need anything else and like so many of these things are like well because underage wizards can't but this the night bus is clearly for adults so yeah like a place where a bunch of adults are sleeping yeah and it's like unsupervised is nowhere for like <laughs> it's so funny you say that because i didn't even like think about that but it's so true it's just where a bunch of drunks like get a ride yeah or like they're like if i apparate right now i'm gonna like lose my arm in the process <laughs> 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 yeah, that's so. But, and I didn't even think about that in terms of like adding that to another mode of transportation. Yeah. In the wizarding world. I know but there's so many. Yeah. Don't worry. There are more to come. <laughs> <laughs> so many more. Uh, this was also kind of like I, I, I think it's kind of funny because like a lot of people when they talk about this movie talk about like, oh, this is when the movies get dark. Like this is when things get dark and yeah. mature. And it's like they do certainly Um, both like visually and in terms of tone and like themes. But also I think the silliness also gets ramped up to an extent. Yeah. Like, you know, this whole night bus scene, this night bus scene is wild. Yeah. Uh, Just like the wackiness of like the, the driver, this kind of older man, the shrunken head, the Jamaican shrunken head hanging. Yeah. Uh, Like it's all super over the top and kind of ridiculous and it's fun. But yeah, I think it's like interesting that like both the drama and the wackiness get ramped up in this movie. I agree. Harry makes his way to the leaky cauldron where Fudge is there to be like, good news, you're not going to wizard prison. Um, (laughs) Just like stay near this area. No reason. Don't worry about anything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just stay in town, please. But soon the Weasleys and Hermione uh, join him. And they, like, get all their school stuff, blah, blah, blah. We know all about Diagon yeah, Alley. We yeah. know about the stores. We know. We know about wizard <laughs> shopping. Um, but Harry does get some information from the Weasleys about a new threat to his life, in case yes. he needed one more. It's a new new year, new threat. Exactly. <laughs> uh, this is um, an interesting scene, specifically in the movie. It's actually a long take um, in the film. I think it's, like, a minute 40 seconds Uh roughly where it's kind of just like the Weasleys running around and then uh, Arthur Weasley comes up to Harry. Yeah. They're all sitting at like the table in the cauldron. And he kind of like pulls him aside into this like kind of like side area. The camera follows and like they keep kind of like moving closer and closer. It's really well filmed and interesting. Yeah. But it's where Arthur uh, specifically warns Harry about Sirius Black and that like no big deal like maybe just watch your back this year and just like be careful because maybe he's trying to kill you he might be specifically targeting you might have escaped specifically to murder you i don't know it's just the rumors (laughs) actually in the book harry kind of overhears a conversation that arthur is having with molly about this oh yeah and then he's not specifically warned by arthur until later and arthur isn't even going to give him like that much info but harry's basically like i heard you 
Um, it's so funny how often like that's like the primary way Harry oh, yeah. gets all information. He's is just like such a great eavesdropper. Overhearing. Like yeah. he can't he doesn't even intend to. Like the Weasley him hearing the Weasleys is just an accident. <laughs> and then later Arthur even goes to tell him and he's like, eh, I, I already know. I already know. Yeah. <laughs> uh so they all get on the train and they are on their way to Hogwarts, but we get an unexpected stop along the way in this film. Exactly. And this is a really cool shot scene, the way it's filmed in the movie, because they're like suspended on this bridge. Mm-hmm. And you can just see the train. They're like looking out the window. And then we get the ice. The creeping ice. Yes. Such a great visual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's alluded to that things get colder in the book. But to take it as far as like everything is freezing over yeah. is like really effective. Also, it's a really great visual cue to us what to expect. Yeah. So we know what's happening. And this is very scary in both the book and the movie because we have kind of heard about like the guards of Azkaban, in, at least in the book before. But this is the first time that we're meeting them and the first time that Harry is seeing them. And the Dementors are interesting because... It's implied that they are not really, like, conscious. Yeah. And, like, they can't see. No. They, yeah, they kind of, like, feel people. Like, they feel the, they feel the vibes of the room. You know what I mean? And then they steal the vibes. Then they steal all the vibes. They just eat them. Yes. Uh, And, yeah, so I really would like to know, I don't know in future books if we learn more about the Dementors. Because, like, I really want to know more about them. Because I feel like they must be created somehow. Yeah, how do they reproduce? Yeah, yeah, they, they don't seem like they don't seem like they're they that interested in reproduction. No, no, they they don't seem like they fuck. <laughs> Maybe when they like steal the soul out of someone, they just they like put, put an egg in there to like in its place. <laughs> Wait, and they then, put an egg in the person. Yeah, oh, and, then and then that the, person turns into a dementor. Oh, I thought like the dementor burst out of them like alien. Oh, okay. Maybe that. Maybe that. Either or, yeah. (laughs) I like either option. I do too. Honestly. (laughs) But Uh, yeah, they like steal away your emotions. And then we find out later that they can actually literally take your soul away um, if they perform the Dementor's Kiss. And they're like kind of like rotted corpses underneath their hoods. Yeah, it's unclear like how much of them there is. Like they have arms, right? Yeah, and they have a face. Yeah, and and a face. But then there are shots where it looks like they're not even like the lower half of a torso. No. Like I really want to know what they look like just like without the robes, like naked. <laughs> I have to know like what the anatomy. There's probably like fan art somewhere. <laughs> probably of naked dementors. <laughs> yeah. Uh so the dementor shows up, he starts um sucking on Harry. And- <laughs> Sorry. There's no good way to say it. I don't know how else to describe it in the movie. Yeah. Um, but Harry's kind of like overwhelmed by them mm-hmm. and uh, passes out yeah. and finds out he's the only one who passed out. So he's like really embarrassed by that. Mm-hmm. But- and he's saved by a new professor mm-hmm. that's joining the team, um, Professor Lupin. Yes. Lupin uh, casts an unknown spell at this point and drives away the Dementors uh, and it's kind of a cool introduction to him as a character. Yeah. I think visually, especially in the movie, it works really well. Mm-hmm. And he gives Harry chocolate to make him feel better. I love that that's like the cure. Yeah. Because I love that it's like, is it magical chocolate or is it just chocolate? I think it's just chocolate. I think it's just chocolate. <laughs> yeah. But I love that about it. Yeah. And so then they're uh, back on their way to Hogwarts after this incident. Yes. 
And now we're back at Hogwarts. We're here in the Great Hall. It's time for a feast. And it's also time for some creepy children to sing some creepy songs. <laughs> yes, with their um, toad yes. uh, instruments or toad assistants. I'm, I'm not really sure how the toads the bass. factor. Yeah, the, the bass. Boom. Of this underage choir. Um, but I love, so they're singing, um, I don't actually know, is it? Something wicked this is way it double trouble or, or double trouble bubble bubble double. <laughs> it's the Macbeth like whole like yes. witches scene uh, ending with something this would something wicked this way comes and I really like this moment in the movie because it's just kind of a fun uh, musical number kind of like creepy major Halloween vibes definitely uh, also it's cool because this song musically was worked into the score of hmm. the film. And the score of this film, it's interesting, John Williams, this was the last movie that he was like the primary composer on. Oh, really? I thought yeah. he did all of them. So he was credited on all of them to an extent because they use Hedwig's theme yeah. in all the movies, which he wrote, so he gets credit. Okay. But um, yeah, I didn't know that either, but like this was the last one that he was like scoring the whole thing for. Wow. Um, but this one also has a very different score. Uh, first of all, that, that song kind of worked into the music a lot, and then there's also this really cool kind of harpsichord music that plays a lot this kind of creepy dun 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 oh dun, yeah dun. like i don't know if it's like peter Pettigrew's theme it might be yeah. yeah uh but i really love that little musical cue that happens a lot in this movie mm-hmm. uh speaking of halloween vibes so ian and i had a discussion earlier about whether the harry potter movies are christmas or Halloween movies. And I think we've been deciding per movie. Yeah. I think the first one was Christmas. Yeah. The second one was Halloween because it was full of snakes and spiders. Yeah, and ghosts. And ghosts. This one is definitely Halloween. Super Halloween. This it, one is the most Halloween. At, at least in terms of the films. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I at one point I was like watching the movie, writing down like every single thing that was like Halloween. I mean, mm-hmm. just the fact that by the last act in the movie... Um, where all the action is kind of happening. It's supposed to be like summer at this point. Yeah. But we have pumpkins and, and crows. Yeah, pumpkins and crows and this like executioner and this hood. Yeah. It's just like very, very much a Halloween vibe. You know, we got the werewolves, the full moon, mm-hmm. which is like sometimes a harvest symbol. Um, so yeah, it was a lot, a lot of Halloween in this movie specifically. Yeah, this one's definitely Halloween yes. out of Halloween and Christmas. But we will be posting a poll on Instagram. Uh, so, you sure. know, follow us on Instagram and we'll ask you, is this Halloween or is this Christmas? The answer is Halloween. The answer is obviously Halloween. If you disagree, Halloween. that's, I guess it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so major Halloween vibes. And then Dumbledore comes up to speak. And in the movie, uh, he looks a little different, doesn't he? Yes, this is the first movie Um, in addition to not having the same director, to not having the same Dumbledore. And I think it's really impressive for this series that virtually no one is recast. Uh, We'll get to Flitwick later. I don't think he's recast. Was he recast? No, he's not recast. He just has a different look. He's a totally different vibe. And actually, that's interesting because I think originally they brought him back. I don't think he's... 
I don't know if technically he's Flitwick in this movie. Really? I think so. Flitwick wasn't like in the script or playing a part at all, but the director wanted that actor to come back. Mm -hmm. So I think he's actually just supposed to be the choir director Hmm. in this film. Oh my God. And then they're like, well, I mean, just make him Flitwick still. Like he'll just (laughs) look different, you know? Oh my God. So like, I think. I don't know if he's like Flitwick in this movie, but later on they just kind of like mash those two together. Okay, then that that makes sense to me now. But I think it is really impressive that the cast pretty much stays the same um, in all of the movies. But of course, um, the original Dumbledore actor died, so they had to replace him. But and I think almost everyone agrees with this statement, but I think that (laughs) this Dumbledore is a more accurate Dumbledore, especially as we get into the later books. Um, Dumbledore is kind of uh, definitely like more on the fringes in the first couple stories, but becomes more and more active um, as the books go along. So to have the same Dumbledore, I think would have been a mistake for the later books. Yeah, Michael Gambon is the name of the new Dumbledore. I forget the old Dumbledore. um, Well, I forget his name, but yeah, I think he... So each movie, especially for like from here on out, he kind of has like an alternating personality <laughs> to to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, in this movie, uh, we're calling him Dumblecoy because he's just or like, just Coy Dumbledore or Coy Dumbledore. I like Dumblecoy. Ian likes Dumblecoy. <laughs> he's like, I don't know. And he's just like always like, hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's uh, I think he's a good it's a really good recasting, especially later on. If you imagine the original Dumbledore, yeah, like in the fighting scenes with Voldemort, or, yeah. I mean, he worked well in the first movies, but like the Michael Gambon recast, I think, is like really good, and I think this is a good introduction for him as well. Definitely. Uh, so we have some new classes and new teachers to talk about. First is divination with Professor Trelawney, who is very into seeing the mystical future. Yeah, I think this is kind of a really funny, interesting aspect in the the story, both book and movie, where like, is divin- divination like just a bunch of shit? Like, yeah, even in like the wizarding world, it's, it's like, under debate. Yeah, like, can people see the future? It seems to be like, uh... The consensus that yes, it is a thing, but like maybe not everyone can do it well. Specifically, maybe Trelawney isn't actually that good at it. Yeah, and I like that the both the book and movie kind of make the case for and against it. They give yes. you like evidence for and against. Um, and of course, she's she's predicting Harry's death by the end of term. It's very grim <laughs> omen. Yeah. Uh, Harry is nervous, so is Ron. Hermione, of course, is like, fuck this. This is dumb. I do like this aspect of the story that like Hermione is clashing over a class and the yeah. teacher is like very is not doing well in a class yeah it's kind of a fun dynamic to be worked in also i did not know (laughs) until the other day that trelawney in the movie is emma thompson yes i had no idea i mean she looks totally different she looks so different but like i'm still shocked that like and she doesn't come back i remember her coming back in the fifth movie yeah to a small extent um but she's certainly not as prominent of an actor character in other movies so but Yeah, I I think she's excellent in this role. She's great. Uh, We also have Care of Magical Creatures, which is taught by uh, Hagrid now Mm -hmm. because he's been promoted. Um, And we get a great first class where (laughs) he's showing them hippogriffs and we meet Buckbeak. Buckbeak the hippogriff. Uh, Harry gets the privilege of getting to be the first to... In in the book, it's like a lot of hippogriffs. Yeah. Uh, In the movie, it's... 
I understandably one. Yeah. I think one is enough. <laughs> uh, but Harry gets to be the one to like interact with it and to get to fly on it. Yeah. Which this is also another trend I want to like point out in the Harry Potter stories. And that is um, magical creatures flying you around. Yeah. And it's like made to look really magical and special. But like when you think about it, Harry flies on a broom constantly. So yeah. like, why would it be that special? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's a good scene in the movie, him flying around, him doing his Titanic King of the World, King of the World pose <laughs> on, on uh, Buckbeak. It, it's well done, but it, it is kind of funny. The book points it out too. In the book, it's like kind of this awkward, clumsy. Yeah, Harry feels really weird on the bird. Yeah, he's like the not bird, into it. <laughs> like, what does he cross between like a bird and a... Like a lion, maybe? Or something. Or a horse? Oh, not, I think maybe a horse. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I forget. Anyway, uh, Draco's like, oh, Potter can do it. I can do it. I love and then in he gets the, fucked up. <laughs> I love in the movie how he's constantly pushing people. I know. Like, he's just always, like, in every scene, like, pushing people out of the way. In this scene, he's, like, eating an apple, like, casually. Like, he's just, like, the pinnacle of, like... Mm, whatever like I don't care push push I also think like Malfoy's such a he's such a fun character I don't know if he makes sense no in a way because like on one hand he acts like he's so much better than everyone but on the other hand he's like <laughs> I know I'm I'm injured and it's like it would be so easy to make fun of him like yeah. how is he like seen maybe it's just his family connections I think people are afraid of him yeah uh but he's constantly playing it up so much but like Tom Felton just rules as Malfoy. He's so funny and he just is. commands every scene that he's in. Um, but this is like a really bad sign for Hagrid's first class that Malfoy yeah, got injured. Yeah, uh, which obviously comes into play later. Yes. And then we have Defense Against the Dark Arts, mm -hmm. taught by Lupin, who is the one to save Harry from the Dementors. And I love that... Um, from the very beginning, Lupin is kind of portrayed like he looks kind of sickly. His yeah. clothes are really like patched and torn. He kind of just looks like he's lived a rough life in general. And so people are kind of suspicious of him. But almost immediately, the entire class, Harry, Hermione and Ron included, are like, oh, my God, we finally have a good Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. <laughs> yes, he's the best. He's so good. He's teaching us things. He's and actually like, teaching us things. I'm like 90% sure he's not evil, but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> I don't know. They've, been, they've probably been scarred at this point. I know. Uh, but so they are taught uh, how to defeat a Bogart which takes the form of everything that they're afraid of. Yeah. I really love um, in the book and film how Lupin uh singles out uh Neville. Neville yeah yeah and kind of gives him this like moment to like shine yeah and to, like, to show that he can do it yeah and, and he just believes in him yeah and I read um uh JK Rowling talking about Lupin and she said like he's the teacher that she wished she had in school mm. like someone who's like wanting to lift up the students who like really need it yeah and kind of like support Be able to people. recognize that yeah and I really think that comes across really well in both versions yeah, and he is, like, trying to actually give them the skills that they might need <laughs> yeah. in, like, the magical world, which is honestly revolutionary at this point. He's, like, the teacher in real life that would be like, okay, here's how you do your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> 
or like you don't need to know this but this is actually important this is like significant like you should really know how to do this and it's just like a really fun scene in both the book and the movie when they're each kind of getting their turn to like defeat the bogger and it's almost like literally them getting a chance to like face their fears and overcome them yeah i also think the movie did a lot of uh really good um bog art uh changes oh yeah so like i can't quite remember like it always seemed in the book that they just turned it to something very random mm-hmm. or kind of like unrelated yeah. from the scary thing but in the movie it was like a spider and now he's on roller skates and that's like a really fun visual mm-hmm. or the snake turning into the possibly scarier jack in the box yeah <laughs> but i really liked the visual or the moon turning into uh, a balloon that's yeah. deflating like all of it was very fun and very visually interesting to look at it was it's a very fun scene and speaking of visuals that one shot where you go through the mirror yeah of the the, the closet was f- it's such a good shot it's so remarkable i love that shot so much mm-hmm uh, let's do the thing that we have. We have to talk about Quidditch every time. We do. We have to. We have to address it because each time it keeps like coming up in a new and different way. Yeah, there's a lot of Quidditch in this book. A lot of Quidditch. A lot. So we're going to condense. And the movie also condenses because it's like, listen, we can't have like four Quidditch scenes. Like, no. I don't know what you want no. from us. Like, yeah. we, we don't have the time. And really, the first one is by far the most significant. And that's when uh, Harry is, during the match, gets attacked by the uh, Dementors, which have come on campus. Yeah. And I really like... The Dementors are on campus. <laughs> as soon as I said campus, I'm like, no, it's not campus, but I'll see if Adina says anything. <laughs> called you out <laughs> you did how dare you <laughs> they're on campus you know they're, they're they're i mean it's it's kind of a campus it's it like is the, it's it's the school grounds i think is what they call it so. yeah yeah essentially they're going to the bookshop you know yeah. they're grabbing a snack yeah uh but i i also liked visually this quidditch match because it's very different than the other two films yeah uh it's rainy it's shitty harry is going way the fuck up like way yeah. out of the you're like what's happening where yeah, are we the, the snitch is making a mad dash for it just out of the stadium and uh yeah the scene where the dementors are attack attack i think is really well done yeah um but so when Harry falls, luckily Dumbledore, luckily someone is there. Someone is there to help. Again, who is watching this? Who is making the rules? Is there anyone helping these children? I'm TBD. Like, luckily Dumbledore wasn't like grabbing up like popcorn or a snack when Harry fell. Like luckily yeah. he was paying attention. <laughs> um, but this is really significant because Harry's uh, broom blew into the Whomping Willow yeah. and it got crushed. Mm-hmm. And this becomes a really interesting subplot in the book where Harry receives a firebolt in the mail yeah. from an unnamed person. And Hermione is worried that it might be from Sirius Black, who is actively trying to murder Harry, like, right now. Yeah, yeah. And so she brings it up to McGonagall. She confiscates the broom. Oliver Wood, who is just so single-minded this entire oh my story, God. is like, oh, my God, the Quidditch. Oh, my God, the Quidditch. Oh, my God, we have to win. Yeah, like, he's like, this is my last year. This is my last chance. There's literally nothing else in my life that could possibly bring me any kind of joy and happiness. It's got to be this. He's definitely the guy who peaked, peaked at Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah. And like, never did anything afterwards um but so it oh my god it was like 
so much focus and so much was written about the firebolt. Oh my room. god, I wanted to murder the it firebolt. It was so annoying and like so much and just like everyone making a big deal about it. And like I get it, but then also JK Rowling writing so much about it. And it was honestly funny because the next match they play uh of Quidditch when Harry's finally on his broom, uh Lee Jordan, yeah, is that the the, yeah. the announcer yeah. kid? Keeps talking about the firebolt, mm-hmm. and McGonagall says something about like Lee, you're not being paid to, to, advertise. to advertise it. And I was like, oh my god, it really feels like that's what J.K. Rowling is doing. I know, right? If there is a product actually called the firebolt, I'd be like, is she product placing? Yeah, is she like- actually doing this? Is she being paid by Big Broom? <laughs> 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 it was just like a lot and just like the Quidditch in general because we do get one other match after this one yeah and both of those matches are written about in depth pretty well and like yeah. they're entertaining enough but like I guess I just didn't care that much no at this point with so much else going on Quidditch was like the last thing I w- that I wanted to read about yeah and I feel like Harry's focus on it and like single-minded like devotion to it and also his failure to see like Hermione did that like this could be like someone trying to kill you and like yeah. you don't care because Quidditch is all you think about was very like oh sports yeah like <laughs> <laughs> it was though yeah I don't know it just um I just I yeah. don't I don't care for Quidditch yeah, I just, I don't much either. And, like, it's most interesting when, like, something else is going on, like the Dementors attacking. Yeah. I just, yeah, I don't care for it that much. They do win the house championship that year, so Wood can finally die, I guess. <laughs> finally <laughs> sh- shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> it's also interesting to note that, like, at this point in the book-to-movie adaptation um, saga, we're finally reaching the point where, like, major subplots are getting kind of, like, totally written off. Yeah. You know, I you think... You have to. You, you Absolutely. Because, I mean, after this, the books only get larger. And, like, I think in the previous book chamber, like, the first book and movie were almost, like, verbatim. Almost exactly. Everything. Yeah. And I think um, the second one left off, like, a couple minor scenes. Yeah. Like, a couple little minor parts. But, like, nothing huge. Uh, but this movie, like the Quidditch subplot being uh, left condensed. out, condensed, yeah, was pretty significant. So it was interesting to kind of like finally reach that point. Yeah. And I was reading about like kind of the script writing and then the directing process for this movie and then future movies where um, Alfonso Cuaron was kind of like, listen, if it's like an important piece for Harry's storyline, then we keep it. If it's not, we're dropping it. Yeah. And this was kind of the strategy that they used for the rest of the movies as well. And while you can argue that Quidditch is important for Harry's development, like I think the including the Dementor scene was obviously the most significant in terms of Harry's like storyline, like him trying to face the Dementors and growing in that aspect. And the rest of it's kind of like, eh, does it really support the rest of the story and Harry's arc? Not really. Let's cut it. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you think about it in the next, not to like jump ahead, but in the next book and movie with the Triwizard Tournament, there are moments of like, success and winning and like everyone's excited and celebrating and it's like you get those moments later on in different ways where they are more relevant and it's like you just don't you don't need them every story especially if they're not needed yeah so i i think this is like a smart thing for quaron to kind of start establishing at this point in the franchise definitely um so 
now Harry is trying to get to Hogsmeade. Yeah. Which is a wizard town that everyone gets to visit, but Harry has Everyone no, but Harry. <laughs> Harry has no one to sign his permission slip because his family hates him. <laughs> it is like so funny because of how like almost accurate it is. Not accurate, but just like there would be that one kid who like couldn't get his sign or his slip sign. Yeah. It's like a whole thing. I know. And the school <laughs> rules. And the school's like, we can't sign it for you. But of course, um, Fred and George choose this moment to reveal their secret weapon, which is the Marauder's Map. And it's a map that shows all these like really cool secret passageways in Hogwarts and also shows where people are in the castle at all times. Very convenient. Um, so Harry uses this and his invisibility cloak to go through a passage and make his way to Hogsmeade and join up with Her- er, Ron and Hermione. Yeah, and he's finally getting to live the time of his life, yeah. getting butterbeer, <laughs> eating a shit ton of candy. <laughs> the candy industry in I know. Harry- It's thriving. Do they just have like a magical remedy for like- They probably don't have cavities. Maybe. Yeah, maybe they've like, like a potion. figured the cure out for cavities or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. But like candy <laughs> is just in abundance in this story. Yeah. Uh, and the, of course the Shrieking Shack, Ron and Hermione. Mm-hmm. Check that shit out. Yeah. And we get a scene of Harry pelting- Draco under his invisibility cloak. Yes. With either snow or mud, depending on the version. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, that's a fun scene, I think, in the movie. Kind of one of the wackier elements, but like works really well. Yeah. The movie condenses like two different Hogsmeade visits into one, which again makes sense for the pacing of the movie. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione are kind of like wandering about where when they see Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, kind of meeting up with some other professors to talk. Yeah, and it's funny because in the book, they're just in the three broomsticks and they just like the teachers and Fudge just sit down next to them and like kind of out of view. But then they just start talking loudly about everything and I'm like, oh yeah. my god, like, how many times can this happen to Harry? Like, He le- overhears so much I accidentally. Know. At least in the movie, he catches wind of one small thing that's said, and then, and then he, like, in. pursues and, like, purposefully, like, investigates, essentially. Yeah, and he finds out through this conversation that not only is Sirius Black trying to kill him because he serves Voldemort, he was actually Harry's godfather and very close friends with his parents and was the one to betray them to Voldemort and is basically the reason that they're dead. Yeah, and uh, Harry takes this news uh, very badly, as you yeah. can imagine. <laughs> and the book and movie, he kind of has like varying reactions. In the book, he's just more upset that no one told, told him. him about this. And he's kind of like wanting to like throw down with like Hagrid, Hagrid or like McGonagall or just like Dumbledore anyone who knew that didn't tell him yeah in the movie though he's more justifiably just angry at Sirius Black yeah and, and we get a, a scene where we see him crying because you know how tragic to have found out someone that you know maybe he saw in photos or was supposed to care for his parents and then turning out that they betrayed them yeah now I'm gonna call you out because You laughed at this scene. Okay, I laughed. (laughs) Okay. He was our friend. (laughs) He betrayed them. (laughs) No, I I, I I just can't help laughing. (laughs) I do agree to an extent. I do think this scene was like a little much for Daniel Radcliffe at this point in his acting career for him to carry. Yeah. I appreciate 
uh, Quran giving these scenes a little bit more emotional weight and giving these characters a little bit more yeah. scene scenery to kind of chew and um, to act in. But I I do agree because like <laughs> Harry's crying and then she takes the cloak off and he's just like got his face all scrunched up like doesn't look like he's been crying at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the scene is is effective though for the most part. Yeah. Uh, where are we? Let's talk about Ron and Hermione's, like, entire squabble for this entire, mostly for the whole book. Yeah. Uh, this is insane to me, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so he- Hermione has a cat now, Crookshanks, and Crookshanks hates Ron's rat, Scabbers. Um, and they've been, like, fighting this whole book and this whole movie, like, kind of a little bit. Um, and Crookshanks clearly wants to destroy Scabbers. <laughs> like, he is, like, him. murder on the mind. Yeah. Clearly. But also, like, they're, they're, like, a cat and a rat. So, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But this escalates and escalates and escalates up until the point where Ron actually thinks that Scabbers is dead because he finds, like, blood on the sheets and, like, Scabbers is missing um, and blames Hermione for this. And just stops talking to her completely. And before this, like Ron and Harry were mad at Hermione because she told McGonagall about the firebolt. Yeah. And like kind of turned them in because she was worried about like Harry being murdered on the broom that was just randomly sent to him from like a mysterious stranger. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're just kind of like constantly on Hermione's case and kind of like giving her shit. And I do feel... I do feel kind of bad for her and feel bad about this dynamic in general. I do like that part of me isn't like as annoyed by it because like I do think it's like accurate to kids their age to kind of like be having shit like this. And I do think that J.K. Rowling acknowledges kind of this aspect. Like, I don't think you're supposed to side with Harry and Ron. No, but I just felt so bad for Hermione. I do too. I really did, because she was just having a tough year. She's taking too many classes. She too thinks she can do classes. it all. Um, and Harry and Ron are just like, they just don't care, really. All they care about is Quidditch and their rats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do get a really, really great scene that I loved in the book where... Um, Harry and Ron visit Hagrid and all this time Hagrid's been kind of worried about this whole thing with Buckbeak because of course Draco is getting his father to intervene and say that this is a dangerous creature that injured his son. So I'm just going to read a bit uh, here when they visit uh, Hagrid. So Hagrid says, I got something to discuss with you two, said Hagrid, sitting himself between them and looking uncharacteristically serious. What, said Harry. Hermione, said Hagrid. What about her, said Ron. She's in a right state, that's what. She's been coming down here to visit me a lot since Christmas. Been feeling lonely. First you weren't talking to her because of the firebolt. Now you're not talking to her because her cat ate scabbers, Ron interjected angrily. Because her cat acted like all cats do, Hagrid continued doggedly. She's cried a fair few times, you know. Going through a rough time at the moment. Bitten off more than she can chew, if you ask me. All the work she's trying to do. Still found time to help me with Buckbeak's case, mind. She's found some really good stuff for me. Reckon he'll stand a good chance now. Hagrid, we should have helped as well. Sorry, Harry began awkwardly. I'm not blaming you, said Hagrid, waving Harry's apology aside. God knows you've had enough to be getting on with. 
I've seen you practicing Quidditch every hour of the day and night, but I got to tell you, I thought you two'd valued your friend more in broomsticks or rats. That's all. Ron and Harry exchanged uncomfortable looks. Really upset she was when Black nearly stabbed you, Ron. She's got her heart in the right, right place, Hermione has, and you two not talking to her. If she'd just get rid of that cat, I'd speak to her again, Ron said angrily. But she's still sticking up for it. It's a maniac, and she won't hear a word against it. Ah, well, people can be a bit stupid about their pets, said Hagrid wisely. Behind him, Buckbeak spat a few ferret bones onto Hagrid's pillow. (laughs) I think we can combine two of our recurring segments for the Harry Potter episodes, which is Hermione is the best and Hagrid is the best. Yes. Hermione is the best for being like the most level-headed about everything and like trying to save Ron and Harry from themselves in many situations. And Hagrid is the best because he's just like so emotionally intelligent. Yeah. He's just like, he's the like poster, it's not not poster child. What would you, poster man? (laughs) (laughs) He's a prime example of of um, tender masculinity. Yeah. Like he just cares about the animals. He's so understanding towards the animals. Like his biggest fault is that like sometimes he's, he's like too understanding, too understanding about animals and creatures and like taking care of them. But just he's like so emotionally open and honest. And yeah. Like, and openly like cries and is not afraid to show that he has feelings and emotions that yeah. he can, you know, shed tears And he sees the good in everyone and he understands what it's like to be judged on how you look or that you might be a little bit different. And that's why he doesn't judge others, including like all the magical creatures that he cares about. And I love the fact that he recognizes how sad Hermione is and is a friend to her in this time when Harry and Ron are too stupid to see that Hermione is like struggling. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I really liked that speech from Hagrid. I think it was, like, really necessary to kind of establish that, like... They're not in the right. No, yeah. And, like, you know, I I do think it makes sense for, like, Harry and Ron to have behaved the way they do as characters. Like, of course, Harry's going to care more about Quidditch than he does, like, his own safety. And Ron is going to be, like, holding a grudge over his rat. Uh, But, like, yeah, I, I really liked this part of the... Of the book. I agree. And then there's another scene later in the book and in the movie where Lupin kind of chastises Harry as well and is sort of like, you're putting yourself in danger and for what? Like, you know your parents died so that you could just be alive. And he's like, (laughs) so maybe take your life a little more seriously, Harry. And it was just like such an own and I really loved that part as well. I did too, especially because like Lupin up until this point in the story had been like, I mean, like, you know, there for Harry like yeah. to talk about things and kind of like be somewhat of a parental figure to him. But also like you need to hear this, Harry, like you need yeah. to because it was revolving around Harry having the Marauders map sneaking off to Hogsmeade. Yeah. But I also think you feel sympathetic, like everyone knows that feeling of like all your being f- left out. Yeah. All your friends get to do something you you're not allowed to him. And being like the singled things out. that feel important to you when you're like 13. Absolutely. Are not the things that you think are important as an adult. I weirdly feel like the Harry Potter books are like the most accurate to what it feels like to be a kid again and to yeah. be a teenager, like more so because we've read other books for the podcast that take place in high school. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't think any of them capture kind of the day-to-day feelings or like the squabbles you have with friends or like those ups and downs you experience like the Harry Potter books do. Yeah. I think they're really effective in that way. I agree. Definitely. We just mentioned it a little bit with the Haggard scene, but of course Buckbeak has his trial 
Um, and unfortunately, uh, an appeal slash execution date is set. <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine that they put like Buckbeak on some kind of stand. And they're like, okay, what do you have to say for like, yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, mm, a likely story. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, so his execution date, I mean, his, his appeal date is set <laughs> with just an executioner present in case they'll need him. Yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit, too, about, uh, like, Lupin and Harry's relationship a little bit more, too. Because they have a really, I like that it took such an extreme shift from every other Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher where he's like, Yeah. Hey, Harry, let's just sit down and chat, champ. Yeah. Sport. I mean, they do have a closer bond, and Harry asks Lupin to teach him the Patronus charm, which is the one that defends against the Dementors, um, because he's like, it's Im- impacting my Quidditch game. I mean, it's important <laughs> to save me from death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it is interesting to see, because it's like definitely higher level magic, and Lupin really like takes Harry kind of under his wing and is really like trying to show him and, you know give him that help that he needs. Yeah, yeah. And I like the kind of care and attention Lupin gives to Harry. And I mean, we find out more that Lupin went to to school with Harry's parents. He was good friends with Harry's dad. Yeah. And like in the movie, it's interesting, too, because he speaks very fondly of Harry's mother. Yeah. Which isn't really addressed in the book at all. No. Uh, So I like getting kind of like him knowing both of them. Like it's not just all about the dad. Yeah. Because it kind of is sometimes in the books like oh harry you're so much like your dad he broke the rules too and he was a (laughs) scamp and like you're like 99 percent your dad but the one percent in your eyes is your mom (laughs) (laughs) so i did like that line thrown in about um lupin knowing his mom too yeah uh something i too i wanted to talk about in in regards to like the trial of buckbeak you know, the televised yeah. trial everyone was watching. <laughs> um, I really think the themes of this book are really interesting because it focuses so much around um, kind of like the justice system and kind of like the uh, miscarriage of justice specifically. Yeah. Like both in the wizarding world, but then obviously so applicable to like real life, too. Yeah. And, you know, because I mean, we have obviously Sirius Black. And the truth we find out about him later. Yeah. But then Buckbeak, which, who we know is innocent right off the bat. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. then it was Malfoy's fault, but he's being, like, sentenced to death. And, like, Harry and Ron being so, like, angry. And how, like, it's just the system. Yeah. Because it's, like, Draco's dad is the one who's actually kind of, like, pushing this. the shots. Yeah. And even at the beginning, um, Aunt Marge, at the beginning of the story, asks Harry, do they beat you at the school they go that, that you go to? And he's like, yes. And she's like, good, like, people that need beaten deserve to be beaten, and I won't yeah. have it any other way. Like, it's, it's like... Kind of a theme. Yeah, it's kind of set up, like, right off the bat, which I appreciate. Yeah. And even, like, so far as, like, the design of the Dementors, I really like how they're, like, almost like the police. Yeah. In this story, they're, like, the carriers of justice. They're the ones who are on the hunt for Sirius, and I like that... But also that they're shown that, like, they kind of don't care exactly. who they kill. Yes. That the, anyone that's in their way or anyone who just catches their notice could be their prey. They're not things to be reasoned with. They're like literally faceless. Yeah. And are kind of, um, yeah, just kind of like hunting serious without like any thought towards what they're doing. They're, what it means. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I really like a lot of the things that are like explored 
in this story with those themes in yeah. mind. I'm not entirely sure if it ends up saying anything at the end, like any like anything poignant anyway. No, not that I expected to like solve the problem. Other than break people out of jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause even at the end, uh not to jump ahead too much, but like with Peter Pettigrew, Harry's like don't kill him, but we'll give him the, to the Dementors. Yeah. And so he's kind of like throwing Peter back in this system that like we've spent so much time establishing like. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Uh, so like I said, I'm not entirely sure that like it kind of resolves itself or like goes to any total conclusion. I mean, Ian and I are always joking about what the wizarding world actually is and what it could mean. And we're like, where do like the petty crime people go in the wizarding world like what about like check fraud and like forgery like do they also go to azkaban you know like just wondering like where does the justice system like what does it mean yeah but i think like in terms of at least this story the fact that it's like oh it's like super terrible azkaban wizard prison yeah or nothing yeah you know what i mean it's kind of like this extreme carrying out of justice uh, without really a lot of thought. And like, clearly when we find out more about Azkaban and what it's like, yeah, it's like, this isn't a place for reform. No, like clearly they don't care about like reforming criminals. It's about like punishing them and torturing them and like making them lose all hope in everything. So yeah, yeah, I, I just think like we've talked about, you know, the last book specifically was very much about like kind of prejudice and like kind of an allegory for racism and just like every kind of prejudice there is so yeah this one i think is like interesting about like the justice system and in a great uh kick-ass moment we do get a scene where hermione punches draco she's executing her own justice exactly she's a loose cannon witch on the edge i love it (laughs) uh in the book it's a slap um but in the movie it's a it's a whole punch it's a whole punch the whole the whole fist we're all impressed it's a great scene it's so funny just like it's so I think it's so jarring because like in this world of like magic and wands. potions and wands, like just to see someone straight up punch someone else is like so amusing. And I love how she like turns away and then comes back with the punch. I was like, oh, get it. Get it. We all wanted it. We all wanted to see it. Uh, so then the gang goes down to Haggard's hut because it's Buckbeak's ex- execution date. Yeah. And the ex- executioner's there. They're there to see Haggard and make sure he's okay, see if there's anything they can do for him. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, at this point, about, like, one of the major changes to this story is the change of set designs. Definitely. Uh, Because Haggard's hut is the most noticeable change in the story yeah from like just kind of being on this like flat plane at the edge of the woods to being on this crazy steep slope yeah uh i remember this bothered me so much when i was a kid and saw this movie really yeah i don't know because it was like the most identifiable landmark that had drastically changed i'm like that's not where haggard hut where his hut goes and (laughs) i think it like made me dislike this movie for a while huh because it didn't seem necessary to change that stuff and i didn't like get why it was yeah uh but it is interesting because this movie does do a lot of reworking of hogwarts as like an entire set yes and also and the grounds and the grounds yeah it establishes a lot it really expands the borders of what we think of as hogwarts the first two movies are primarily like indoor great hall a couple classrooms 
you know, you know, the Gryffindor common room and stuff, and then Hagrid's hut. And like, that's all we know, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, just the entrance coming into Hogwarts. But now we have like this bridge and there's a scene where Harry and Lupin are talking on this bridge. Yes, the bridge, which is significant. It comes into back a lot. Oh, it does. Yeah, it's used a lot and it's established first here. And then we get this like kind of standing stone area, which is where Hermione like punches Draco. And then these like kind of steep steps leading down to Hagrid's hut. I read that they did a lot of like filming on location. Mm. I think in Scotland or Ireland. I forget which one. I was gonna say, it definitely feels like a real place. You know what I mean? Or at least like aspects of it are real. Mm -hmm. And considering so much of this movie takes place outside in in terms of like the last act and like the last third of it, I think it is a really smart decision to kind of make the landscape a little more dynamic. I I completely agree. Yeah. Something about like, I, I, something about this movie and like this movie, even more than the other ones, like the aesthetic feels like almost more like, um, What's his name? Uh, who did Sweeney Todd and Edward Scissorhands? And oh, Tim Burton. Tim Burton. It's almost got a little bit of a Tim Burtony kind of a feel, where like things are like more crooked, or yeah. it's kind of hard to like, especially with like the pumpkins and stuff and the crows near the end, kind of like a darker yeah. aesthetic, uh, which is really interesting to me. And like most true to this movie is that kind of aesthetic. I want to say, yeah. Uh, so we're back in Hagrid's hut mm-hmm. and they're there to comfort Hagrid. Poor Hagrid. He's so sad about Buckbeak. <laughs> so sad. And they're just trying to be there for him, which I love. I love that they're there to comfort him. Dumbledore's coming down also to be with Hagrid during this time of crisis, which I love. I know. I know. Me too. But then they're reunited with Scabbers, who is not dead. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Scabbers shows up again. Yeah. He's just there. I think in the movie it makes a lot of sense. Hagrid found him and was holding on to him. Yeah. For Ron. Um, but so they get scabbers and then uh, Fudge, the are Fudge and the executioner are coming. So they have to like hightail it out of there. They get back to like a distance away from Hagrid's hut in time to see the executioner swing his axe. And so they thought they're like, oh, no, Buckbeak's dead. Yeah, definitely. Even though we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then a whole bunch of craziness. Things get wild. Yeah. Things really go nuts. Um, A giant dog shows up. And it kind of starts, like, attacking Ron. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, shit, we're near the Whomping Willow. And the dog literally pulls Ron, like, kicking and screaming, into a hole underneath the Whomping Willow. Hermione and Ron, Hermione and Harry are trying to chase after him. But, of course, the Whomping Willow is also trying to kill them. So this is just, like, a very wild scene, especially in the movie. It's like... There's some Bugs Bunny shit going on in the movie. Hermione, like, like, grabbing (laughs) Harry's shirt and then it being, like, two seconds later that he's, like, flung out. I really love it, though. I don't know. This is one of those moments where, like... In, in a movie where you're like, does this work? Like, you're not even entirely sure, but I'm like, it does. I, I'm here for it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying it. Uh, so they manage to bypass the Whomping Willow and get into a hidden tunnel underneath it that was kind of unknown to them up yeah. until that point. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it was really fucked up. Ron, like, breaks his leg. Yeah. Like, in a very visible, kind of very violent way. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're really worried that he's going to die. So they follow the tunnel for quite a ways until it leads to the Shrieking Shack, the Shrieking Shack, notoriously haunted. Yes. So they go up to one of the bedrooms and discover Ron and discover the dog isn't a dog. 
It's serious serious black. black. Uh, the scene that follows is like, <laughs> it's funny. So like, Black is just being crazy. He's like vaguely threatening them, which I think is so funny. They're yeah. like, you can't, if you kill Harry, you'll have to kill us. And he's like, only one person will die tonight. I know, he's like not helping his case <laughs> no, at he's... all. Like, he's just like, I'm so crazy. <laughs> I do love Gary Oldman's performance in this yeah. part, though. Like, he does the crazy so well. He does. Uh, and so at one point, Harry... Like, in the book, it just turns into a fist fight. Yeah. Harry just starts... Wait, once again, we're bypassing all magic, and Harry's just, like, resorting to Going his for fist, the punches. Going for the punches. And uh, they get in this fist fight, and it it seems like they have Sirius pinned down until who shows up but... Lupin. Lupin, and disarms everyone. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, oh, good, a teacher's here. And then he straight up hugs... Serious, and they're like, "Oh no, we knew it!" <laughs> and Hermione like seriously pulls a dick move and like outs him as a werewolf in <laughs> I, front of everyone, even though it's like not relevant to anything. No, she's like, "I was covering for you," and it's like, "No, you weren't. Like, don't act like you were doing him a favor. Don't act because you were just not telling people something they didn't need to yeah, know." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, like Harry is like really angry because he trusted Lupin, and Lupin's basically like. Listen, listen, we can explain everything. And so now we will. Yeah. There's a whole ridiculous like wand exchange in the book. Oh, my God. We're like everyone has their wand. And then. OK, I have I have the whole thing. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, so first Sirius disarms them and takes all their wands. And then Harry attacks Sirius and gets all their wands back. And then Lupin comes in, and then he gets all the wands again. And then he's like, but we're innocent, and we can explain, so I'm going to give you the wands back. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of wand transactions. I do love it, too, because, like, Lupin shows up and is like, let me explain how I got here and why I'm here. And then, yeah. of course, Snape shows up later, and he's like, you're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> and, like, he has to explain how he got there. Um, but well, we do find out a lot about yeah. Lupin's backstory, and specifically that... He was like a young boy when he was bitten by a werewolf and, uh, you know, had no control over this. And that actually Dumbledore, we found this is a lot of this is not in the movie at all. Um, but Dumbledore wanted him to come to school. So they specifically set up the whole Whomping Willow, Shrieking Shack thing for Lupin to come here during the full moon so he could transform safely and not harm anyone. Yeah, which I like this was like detail stuff that I had like totally forgotten since the last time I watched uh, the movies or I'm sorry, since the last time I read the book. Yeah, uh, we find that all that out. We also discover who the identities of Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs. I yes, remembered them. who wrote the Marauder's Map, which is, you know, Harry's father, James, Lupin, Sirius Black and uh, Peter Pettigrew. Yeah. And. It, it was really cool, too, because, like, they were all friends in uh, Hogwarts, and when uh, they discovered that Lupin was a werewolf and what was going on, they all uh, decided to become... Animagi? Animagi, thank you. Uh, which is where you can turn into an animal. Yeah. Which, like, doesn't seem like it would be that impressive in the wizarding world, but apparently, but apparently it, is. it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's Not like a very big many deal. people do it. Yeah, and also, like, you have to register with the government when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they all did it illegally and they like 
decided to like be with Lupin whenever he transformed and to kind of like keep him keep him in check. Yeah. But just like so he wouldn't have to be alone yeah. and to support him. And I really loved finding out about this like deep bond the four of them had in school. Yeah. And it makes it like very interesting, like the different twists of what happened later on between all those friends. Yeah. But of course, they're alleging that um, Peter Pettigrew, who was supposed to be killed by Sirius Black, um, is actually alive. And Peter P- Peter Pettigrew might have been the one to betray Harry's parents and not Sirius Black. But of course, as they're trying to explain all this, that's when Snape shows up. Yes. And Snape is like single-mindedly like, I'm going to murder everyone here. He's crazy in the book. He is. He's like so just like done with everything. No, he is like a hell hella excited for Sirius to get straight up murdered by the Dementors. Like, he's like, oh, I've been waiting so long to see when they, like, suck the soul from your body and then plant the egg inside you and then it busts (laughs) out into a (laughs) Dementor. I'm gonna have popcorn. I'm gonna sit and watch that shit. And everyone else is like, Jesus, Snape. What's wrong with you? And he's like, they made fun of me in school. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, I don't know. (sighs) Snape is a pretty frustrating character specifically in the book. Yeah. He's just so, especially in this story, so hung up on like being shitty to Harry, being shitty to Hermione. Being shitty to Lupin. And like, honestly, like I get him being shitty to Harry because he has a grudge against him because of his parents. But like, he's so rude to Hermione and is constantly telling her to like, shut up telling her that she's a know-it-all, shaming her in front of the class, like, repeatedly for just, like, knowing the answers and being like, I'm sorry, the smartest witch that ever existed and the best person ever. (laughs) And, like, he's always, like, just putting her down and telling her to, like, be quiet. And I just, like, am not here for this, like, male, like, bullshit, trying to, like, squash this, like, brilliant woman's talent. Like... It does come across very misogynistic at points, just calling her a stupid girl and things like that. Yeah. And just, I don't know, at this point, Snape is just like, he seems like he's just on his own vendetta, which I don't like. I think the movie does a really good job of balancing Snape out. Yes, he gives a lot of those same shitty lines to Hermione and Harry, like at school and in the book. Yeah. But at this point in the story, he just seems like, I've stumbled across this shit and yeah. I'm going to try to handle it as like a teacher. And not like on a personal mission of vengeance. Yeah. So when Harry uh, disarms Snape and like knocks him out in the in the movie, I think it's much more like jarring. Yeah. Like in the book, you're like, OK, this fucker had it coming. Like, I don't <laughs> care. Like, whatever. Yeah. In the book, you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, oh, shit. It's like very violent and kind of shocking. Yeah. And I love, too, that later... Um, when Lupin transforms into the werewolf and Snape shows up again, he like puts the kids behind him yeah. and is like defending them. Yeah. And I really love that moment that like in the movie, in the movie. Yes. That like, even though, even though he's shitty, um, and like really terrible to Harry and everything, like he's still like, he's still like, I'm the adult in this. Situation. Yeah. He's still a human being. He's going to defend a bunch of children against a werewolf. Yeah. And I love kind of like reestablishing that dynamic that he's not just like insane, which he is in the book. He is. He's so insane in the book, but they get him knocked out with their triple expelliarmus. <laughs> um, and this is when we get the reveal, of course, that. Scabbers is Peter Pettigrew slash Wormtail. Scabbers slash is actually the scariest fucking thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Poor Ron. Poor Ron. 
he was like, especially in the book, was just like, my rat, don't take him. I don't want, yeah. I don't want to know that he's like a middle-aged creepy man. Yeah, who like still kind of looks like a rat and is very like, just like crawling on the floor. <laughs> like, ugh. I do love how he was still so rat-like after having been uh, a rat, a for, rat so for so long. And just like, I think the book even addresses it more how like, uh, probably emotionally scarred Ron is going to be from this experience. Oh my God. He's like, I let you sleep in my bed, you psycho. <laughs> He's like, oh God. <laughs> he needs to, do wizards have therapy? I don't know, but they should. <laughs> Maybe they'll just take the memory out of his brain. They probably need Maybe to. Maybe that's just is what's better in the long run. Of course, many people have been like, why didn't Fred and George Weasley notice on the Marauders ma- map that like this rat that lived in their family for 12 years was there the whole time? A very valid point. Yes. The only thing that I can think of is that, like, the Marauder's Map only shows Hogwarts. Yeah. And Ron was only there for two years prior to this. Yeah. And at this point, maybe they didn't really use the map that much. Because they seem to kind of, like, when they give it to Harry, they're like, we don't need this anymore. Yeah. We know where all the passageways are and stuff. Um, that's my best defense of it, but I yeah. agree. It's kind of a huge plot hole, especially given that like Harry kind of could have gotten the map from anywhere. Yeah. You know what I it mean? It didn't have to be the Weasley. No, he didn't have to get it from Fred and George. So like, I think that, uh, in the long run that could have been easily avoided as a big plot hole. So yeah. And then we do find out that it was Peter Pettigrew who, who betrayed Harry's parents and sold them out to Voldemort. Yeah. There's... There's kind of a lot in the book that has to be explained from different characters. Like, at this point in the book... like It's just all explanation. It's so much. Like, Lupin's backstory is explained. Snape talking about, like, the time he was, like, played a prank on that almost killed him. And yeah. then, like, everything with Peter Pettigrew. And there's, like, kind of more than there needs to be. Also, Crookshanks, yeah. the cat, is, <laughs> it like... Is very integral to the plot. Is super important to the plot. And, like, at one point, I'm like, is Crookshanks also an Animagi? And I've, like, forgotten. Uh, it is funny, though, because, like, it does seem like if anyone was an Animagi, it would be Crookshanks. Crookshanks definitely seems yeah. to, like, be the most aware and, like, sentient. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's also another thing with, like, in the past, Sirius Black was the secret keeper yeah. for the Potters when they went into hiding, which was, like, this whole magical thing where, like, they couldn't be found unless the secret keeper gave them up and Sirius was the secret keeper. Yeah. So it was, like, it had to be him. But then we find out later that, like, oh, no, I handed over that duty to Peter Maybe because he thought he was less likely or less suspicious. Yeah, he basically said they were going to make me the secret keeper and I mean, like told everyone they were that, that I was going to be. And then at the last moment, I told them to do someone else. So it would be less obvious. Yeah, which I'm like, this whole thing, like there's already enough evidence that like Sirius killed Peter yeah. and was likely the person who... Um, sold out the potters that like this whole secret keeper I know thing seemed very unnecessary to like complicated yeah unnecessarily complicated luckily the movie I think just left it all out it was just like he betrayed them yeah he betrayed them it was fine (laughs) like whatever that's all we need to know yeah I, I totally agree it just was like at this point in the story when there's already so much that needs unpacking this was like one there were a few additional things and I'm like this is not necessary yeah And so Sirius and Lupin want to kill Peter Pettigrew immediately. And Harry's basically like, no, we'll take him to the Dementors. So kind of like 
saves Peter's life in a way. Yeah, he's like, we'll take this weird rat man to other people who will kill him. Exactly. And so they all leave the Shrieking Shack. They come out of the Whomping Willow and they're like, everything's fine. What could possibly go wrong? And Sirius is like, hey, Harry, you want to live with me? Ugh. I love this moment. It in is a really the book sweet. And in the movie, it's yeah. very sweet. Because we see Sirius kind of being like normal for the first time. Because <laughs> this whole time he's been like, haha, one will die tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't say who or explain what I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see him like chilled out a little bit. Yeah. And to have this moment with Harry. And where he's like, I'm your godfather. Like, you know, if you want to live with me. I understand if you don't want to. He's, like, very, like, self-conscious about it. Yeah. But he clearly wants to be in Harry's life and cares about him. And Harry's like, wow, someone that likes me. <laughs> and the Dursleys are so terrible. I'll go with this man I've known for two seconds who, until a minute ago, I thought was, like, oh, yeah. gonna murder me and is still probably crazy. <laughs> like, that's how bad Harry's situation with the Dursleys is. Yeah. But, of course, all this is shattered when the clouds move over and expose the full moon and of course lupin has not taken his potion that night Mm -mm. he transforms into the werewolf which was a scene i really liked how it played out in the movie yeah i thought his transformation was really good serious trying to like stop him talk him down even though i'm like would this ever work probably not but like uh but of course then there's the dog fight yes serious turns into a dog he fights with a man dog (laughs) uh Peter Pettigrew uses this chance to escape as a rat. Uh, And then it all kind of like, you know, uh, Lupin runs off into the woods. Sirius is badly hurt and goes down to the lake where Harry pursues him. Yeah. And this is when the Dementors attack. Yeah, we see the ice. We know they're coming. And there's a shit ton of them. Of course, they're like, Sirius is here. We're going to kill him. And they don't even care that Harry is there, too. And in fact, they're sucking away Harry's soul as well as Sirius's and it's really traumatic and scary and we don't know what's going to happen and then we see a Patronus show up um and it saves Harry and as Harry is like going into unconsciousness because he almost died he thinks that he sees his dad yeah I do like in the movie uh they are going to suck out Sirius's soul in the book it's Harry that they're gonna attack yeah and in the book, it's uh, or in the movie, it's serious. And we actually see what it looks like when your soul is leaving your body. It's like a shiny marble. It's like little, little shiny. <laughs> and also there's like some phlegm kind of around it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, so, you know, they're saved. Harry wakes up in the hospital wing. But, you know, Snape was knocked out before Peter Pettigrew was revealed. Yeah. And he escaped before Snape, before Snake, before Snape came back. <laughs> and... Uh, so there's like no evidence that Sirius is innocent no. and they have him and they're like, well, we're going to straight up kill him now. Yeah. Uh, and his execution date is set for two minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> they're very efficient with their oh, executions. Oh yeah. They're like the executioner sh- executioners are already here. We got yeah. the Dementors we're ready to go. Of course, um, they're all the, the group is just like, listen, anyone listen to us. Like this is not true. And Dumbledore is kind of like, hey, I believe you, but, like, there's really nothing I can do. And this is a moment where Harry's like, wow, Dumbledore can't, like, fix everything? Like, I'm kind of shocked. But then Dumblecoy is like, I don't know, maybe if someone could, Maybe if we had more time. Time? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, So then, of course, we get the totally seemingly out of nowhere plot twist that Hermione has the ability to time travel. Yeah. 
she's been doing it this entire time in order to take more classes. Uh, that's a thing. Anyway, she's like, okay, we just have to go back in time. And Dumbledore says like two lives might be saved tonight. So they're like, well, what do we need to do? And they kind of quickly determine. And Ron can't come because in the book, he's unconscious. And in the movie, his leg is fucked up. So it's just Harry and Hermione. And they're like, well, we have to save Buckbeak. Yeah. So Buckbeak is first on their list of uh, things to save. Yeah. I do love, though, I uh, take a moment in the movie to say that I love that um, Alphonse Cuaron really did a great job of establishing a visual motif of clocks in this movie. Definitely. Because it is kind of like out of nowhere, plot-wise, that like Hermione is like, well, we can go back in time. They've mentioned Hermione's class schedule once or twice, but like nobody has thought anything along the lines of time travel. No. Um, So one of the things Quiron does to kind of like at least make it more interesting or like rewarding is that... There is this clock tower established in the setting of Hogwarts that yeah. Harry, when Harry's moping, he's always at the clock tower. <laughs> he's always in front of the huge pendulum or he's like staring at the clock face being sad. Yeah. But we get this visual of clocks a lot. Yeah. And it also happens to be right outside the hospital wing. Mm-hmm. So when in, they do time travel in the hospital wing, we get these like great shots going through the clock face. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of like a nice visual reward that like, even though that plot device hasn't been brought up before, this like visual idea is being paid off. Yeah. And I feel like in the movie too, they kind of take more advantage of the time travel aspect. There's more scenes where the time travel comes into play such as when um, the trio is in Hagrid's hut and Hermione has to throw rocks yes. to distract them, or when Lupin is like turning to attack and Hermione does like the howl to get him away. There's a lot of great payoffs, and I really like that the movie did this. It made it a lot more fun when they go back in time. Because yeah. really, in the book, they go back in time... And they lead Buckbeak into the woods. And then they wait around. <laughs> and then they just like sit and wait for a while. Yeah. Um, they have a plan. They're like, we're going to ride Buckbeak and like save Sirius. But like, it's a lot of waiting. Yeah. And really in uh, the movie, they're more active. There's more fun payoffs. Running around in the forest. Lots mm-hmm. of that type of action. And we get Harry watching the Dementors coming in to, you know, either kill him or or serious and he's waiting and waiting and waiting and he's waiting because he's like I know I saw my dad like someone's gonna save them and I love I love this moment when he's like no one's coming yeah and he's like it's me and this is I don't even know how to explain it but I just love the realization that like no one's gonna help me like I have to do it or like I'm the only one who can do it Mm-hmm. And that kind of like finding that strength within yourself and also kind of that understanding that like I don't need someone to save me because I'm capable. Yeah. And especially that there's like this gap in his life of where his father was. And like in this story, he finds out so much about his dad and like out of uh, yeah. uh, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prong, like three of them, like everyone but are his father are in this story. And so... To an extent, he's like, maybe my dad is alive. Like, maybe he did come back. Like, in the book, he kind of talks about that. Like, I know it's crazy, but it's also crazy that all these other guys are back in my life right now in this moment. Yeah. And it kind of just being like, 
Harry kind of stepping up. You know what I mean? Not looking to be saved. It's a coming of age moment for sure. It really is. And I think it's like really emotional and effective because of that too. I agree. And so they're able to save Sirius. They break him out. And they he rides away on Buckbeak. Mm-hmm. And so the two of them are safe, which is great. Um, but I want to take a moment to talk about time travel a little bit in this story. Yeah, boy, because it sure is. Um, at least the Avengers waited until the last movie <laughs> to, <laughs> to, throw, time to throw in time travel when it's like, OK, we've exhausted everything else. Let's do time travel now. So an interesting aspect of this time travel. So I looked this up. So this form of time travel is called... Novacore's self-consistency principle, which basically means that the time travel is a closed loop. So if I like to think about time travel in terms of like, is it back to the future time travel or is it Terminator time travel? Mm. This is definitely Terminator time travel where you find out that you were supposed to go back in time the whole time. And basically everything that happened was meant to happen already. So it's kind of like things can't really be changed too much because they've already happened. You're not creating like an alternate universe. You're not changing things really. You're just kind of self-fulfilling. And I think this fits really well in the Harry Potter universe. It does. Because like, and especially we're still in that phase of the books where they're not super serious. Yeah. And so like the whole self-fulfilling kind of prophecy of time travel of like, oh, like we time traveled, but we had already time traveled essentially. So we were like doing what we were supposed to be doing. And like, it all feels like it fits pretty well. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, like, I don't. I don't know. It raises a ton of questions. It absolutely does. And for sure, J.K. Rowling has said that they can only use the time turners to travel back five hours and that beyond that, like it fucks things up too much, apparently. Yeah. And I think that was obvious. People who were like, well, why doesn't Harry go back and like save his parents? That kind of thing. Like the fact that like. You have to turn it over once per hour. You yeah. want to go back in time. Like, yeah. if you're going to go back 12 years, like, that's totally not feasible. But it is kind of interesting to point out, though, that J.K. Rowling kind of regretted including this time travel element yeah. in the third book. And in fact, because of, like, a lot of the questions she received from fans afterwards and, like, just kind of plotting the further books, I think in the fifth movie, all the time travel all the time turners are destroyed in the fifth book. I mean, yeah, I, that's what I read too. It's the, it's the fifth one. They're like, also, we uh, broke all those things. All that right. Are like- they're all. So she, I think she was just kind of like wanting them out of the way before the final act of the seventh. Cause you book. would constantly be like, why don't you use the time turners? Exactly. And yeah. I mean, she's come out to say that this is one of her favorite, one of her favorite books that she wrote. Um, she really enjoyed writing this. She liked writing the characters and I think it was a good time in the series for her. Like it was doing well, but it wasn't like so popular that she couldn't like go outside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, this is still at a point in the books where like they have to, they keep, they're still explaining Quidditch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which was like something the second book did too. It's like, oh, by the way. Quidditch. This is how Quidditch works. Yeah. And this book is like still doing that to an extent. It's like Quidditch is the thing with the balls. There's like three balls and like the one is bad and the one is good and one Harry has to catch. And like <laughs> it's like much faster on the recap of things, but it's still doing it. Yeah. Because at this point, I think people were still like being not, introduced to the story. Yeah. And not as en- engrossed in it that like they remembered every specific detail. Yeah. So, yeah. I it, And especially because like for a book where time travel is a factor, not a lot 
is a result of the time travel. Yeah. Like, it really could have been eliminated from the story altogether pretty easily. It could have. Um, But I will say it at least makes sense in this book. And I don't want to go into too much detail about it. But I will say that there is a whole, like, storyline in The Cursed Child, which I do not believe is canon at all, that totally, like, undoes all of, like, what time travel means in this universe. So it's stupid. Yeah, it's a totally different. It's whatever. It's the back to the future. It's back to the future time travel. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's absurd. But uh, so, yeah, so they managed to save Sirius. Everyone's happy. uh, Except except Lupin, because (laughs) someone outed him as being a werewolf in the school. And so Snape, it was Snape. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) I don't really think that was necessarily implied in the movie. Yeah. It was just like someone said something. Yeah. I mean, I think he's like someone. Yeah. It was like probably Snape. But in the book, it was like it was definitely Snape. And so he's like resigning because he was like, people don't want someone like me teaching their children. Yeah. And Harry's really sad about this. He's like, literally, you're the the only good defense against the dark arts teacher we've ever had. Um, But Lupin's kind of resigned. And J.K. Rowling has said publicly in multiple different situations that Lupin is supposed to be, and the whole werewolf thing is supposed to be kind of an analogy for AIDS. Yes. And you can definitely see where that analogy fits into the narrative. And I do think it creates an interesting um, werewolf character story in this book where like Lupin's like kind of very sickly. You know what I mean? He seems like very withered. He's constantly just like disappearing when he has to transform. It's like something he's like living with. Yeah, it's like a chronic condition. Yeah, it's not going away. He takes a potion that throughout that like helps him like he still transforms, but he has it under control. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's an interesting um, character aspect. I do think it's tough, though, when you're like, this is an analogy for this specific thing. Yeah, because then you come under a lot of scrutiny, especially for something as like sensitive and like horrifying as the AIDS epidemic was. Um, And you're talking about a group of people that, you know, were generally like, you know, gay or queer. Um, And just like how people treated them and how horrible the whole thing was. So like, I think in this book, it works okay. Yeah. Especially like showing that, you know, Lupin is like deeply misunderstood by a lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, Lupin sex, I mean, I'm not saying that like, you know, AIDS affects can affect straight people as well, but obviously it impacted uh, the gay community the most. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like Lupin has to be gay for this analogy to work, but like it certainly helps the case. Yeah. Uh, And in this story, we don't know anything about Lupin's sexuality. So I do think that also helps this but like yeah in the later books we discovered that lupin i mean i guess he could be bisexual he could be i guess it's, it's not like it's implied that he's hella straight and then <laughs> the introduction of like another werewolf character which we're not going to really get into here just completely like turns on its head this whole like aids analogy and it just does not work after this so we did want to point it out that like I think it, it kind of you can make a case that it's it's OK in this story. But as the series progresses, comparing werewolves to having AIDS is just like a very poor analogy and it does not work. And I think a lot of people were kind of offended by it. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I also think it's important how you talk about it. Like, I, don't, I won't criticize like 
any writer or creative where their ideas come from. Yeah. But I think later on, it's how you talk about it, like where you're like, this is representative of this specific thing. I think if you're like the origin of this idea came around this dynamic of being misunderstood, it being a chronic thing you have to live with, it being a challenge. Um, But she's really leaned into the AIDS narrative, which I do think makes it a little harder to kind of like... It kind of kind of makes you want to pick it apart more, yeah. and really examine it and be like, like, oh, does this hold up? And I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking about like, oh, werewolves <laughs> are, are werewolves, an analogy yeah. for AIDS. Like, it is a little ridiculous when you start to like look into it too much. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um. But so Lupin is retiring from being a teacher, and I I do like this moment too because Harry's like. I feel like I didn't do anything. Yeah. Like, I feel like everything we did was for nothing, Mm -hmm. which is very different than the other two books. The other two books ended with Harry. Like defeating the Killing a man (laughs) or stabbing a snake and killing a ghost. Like, Harry just is, like, dominating in the last two books. And this one, it's kind of like, I mean. What happened? Yeah. He's like, we helped a little maybe, but, like, ultimately everything. And the villain wasn't who you thought. Yeah. And, like. Yeah, Sirius didn't die, but he's no better off than he was when he just escaped. Yeah. So I do like this kind of shift in ending, too, compared to the previous two, where it's like, hey, maybe I'm not, like, Superman, and maybe I can't do everything and, and solve everything myself. And things are out myself. of my control, and there's a lot of different factors. Yeah, and I, I, that's one of the reasons I really like this story, is because it does feel a little more mature in that way. It's not like, oh, we defeated the villain, the end, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, what, what now? Yeah, exactly. What does this mean for the future? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's it's interesting. And the movie ends, I like, with Harry getting the firebolt at this point in the yeah. story. Yeah, Because, uh, I mean, Sirius gave it to him in the book as well. Yeah. Which the funny twist was just like it was an authentic, genuine <laughs> gift and not like a murder device. <laughs> not a murder gift. But I like him getting it here at the end of the story and Harry using it to fly away from everyone and just get away from all his problems. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we get that funny freeze frame at the end. Oh my God. Which I like. I don't know. Once again, it's one of those moments where like, this is silly, but <laughs> I'm kind of here for it. Uh, but yeah, that I think closes up both versions of the story, right? Yeah, that's Man. it. That was like 50% talking about the ending. I know. it's It has such a dense ending for sure. Uh, so now we have to ask the question... That's the central theme of our podcast. Which Which one's better? Which is better. The definitive question (laughs) that we absolutely are 100% certain about. Yes. Uh, I am, I have my choice made, but it's very, I'm kind of flighty. I want to hear what you have to say first because like it may change how my decision. Okay. Um, So I think that the movie is better. That's actually what I was going to say. I think I enjoy the movie better. I think it's so visually interesting and like beautifully shot. There's a lot going on. They've really expanded the Hogwarts world. And we have some really great performances like uh, Gary Oldman, uh, David Thewis, I think. Th- th- yeah. I don't know how to say his last name, <laughs> but are excellent in They're this so movie. They're so good. Um, the, the young actors are really like kind of coming into their own a little bit, especially Hermione. Um, and... I don't know. I just like I was really like annoyed in this book with the whole like Ron and Harry like hating on Hermione subplot. And it like made me pissy for like a lot of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, I was just like really pissed about it. Um, And I think the movie does really trim a lot of unnecessary content. And like this film feels so visually like 
cohesive and it has yeah. like a vibe. It has a mood. It has a storyline and it sticks with it. And I love this book and I love the kind of more mature themes that are in it. But I just really enjoy this movie. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a video. We will link to it on our Patreon. So if you're interested, visit our Patreon for some different resources we'll link to. There's a really great video by uh, Nerdwriter, who's an essayist on YouTube. And it's about the visual change of this movie from the previous two. Yeah. And just kind of like the visual language of Quran and just kind of like all the maturity involved in it and all the subtleties and just like it's a really well crafted and well made movie. Yeah. That I really, really love. Uh, there are like some small things with it that like maybe aren't my favorite. But I mean, overall, it's like really excellent. And I I did enjoy the book a lot, too. I, I enjoyed it more than I think Chamber of Secrets. I definitely did. Because like, yeah. I don't know why Chamber of Secrets was kind of a slog for me a little bit. It was kind of boring. It was. Um, And I think. You know, because it was a mystery story that we knew the answer to the mystery. Yeah. Whereas this had so much more maturity to it. I didn't mind the Harry Ron <laughs> anger at Hermione dynamic because it just felt true to like kids that age. Yeah. And I don't think like the book was like really justifying their behavior. So no. I was like, it didn't bother me. Honestly, the Quidditch stuff was like <laughs> the biggest burden for me to read. I just like didn't care about all the Quidditch shit. Yeah. In this book. And same with, like, some of the other details about, like, the Crookshank subplot. Like, Mm -hmm. all, like, I don't know, at the end, like, everyone has to explain what their motives are. Yeah, Yeah. Snape has to explain. Lupin has to explain everything. I do love Lupin's backstory. I do, too. In the book, I don't necessarily think the movie should have gone into it. I don't think it had the time. No. Um, But I do love that rich backstory and character in the book. Um, But overall, I just think the movie is leaner. It keeps everything. It it just puts it together a little better, I think. It does. Yeah. Especially like with the time travel at the end. Yeah. That whole, the whole time travel bit and all of that leading up to it. It's just like so smooth. It is. Like it's such a great, like that whole last part of the film is just like expertly made. Yeah. And like. I don't know. It fills me with so much emotion when Harry casts that Patronus. I know. Which, by the way, I do love that aspect in this story. Harry's finally, like, doing magic shit. Yes, And finally. doing it well. <laughs> like, it's actually a part of his character that he has to, like, cast, like, a difficult spell. Yeah. Because everything up until now, he's just, like, a student. And in the last book, he, like, uses a sword more than he uses his wand. Yeah. So, like, I liked that we're shifting to that more in the in these... Um, in this adaptation too. So yeah, it is, it's a movie again from both of us. It's a movie. So send us your hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> send us your thoughts and opinions. We love to hear them. Yeah. And uh, what should we do a, uh, do a little lightning round? Let's do lightning round. So uh, first thing that we kind of like didn't get around to talking to in the main episode is that uh, this is the movie that definitely introduces casual Friday. <laughs> Um, to Hogwarts because the students are definitely in like casual clothing a lot more, especially during like the whole climax of the movie. Yeah. But I think it's a good move. It is. The whole like students in cloaks and then the whole like school uniform thing, I think gets a little boring. Yeah. Well, and even the school uniforms are reworked in this movie and like, <laughs> like they're kind of like, so all, all the boys like have their ties like tied terribly i know they're so bad especially in the buckbeak scene yes there's not one straight correct tie and i read that alfonso Cuaron like 
let each boy tie their tie however they wanted to just to be like yeah just they're do like it. 13 year old yeah just do it however you'd want to also it's funny because like their cloaks probably cover up their ties most most of the time yeah and like in this scene they happen to take their cloaks off so it's like the reveal that like oh my none god none of them know how to tie none ties. of them know how to tie a tie <laughs> they also don't know a spell about how to tie a tie no no you'd think they would just have that magic down at this point but yeah this definitely comes into play in like neck the next movies as well yeah yeah they're casual they're casual wear so next up for lightning round i just want to point out some really great dumbledore lines most of them are in the book and in the movie uh at the beginning dumbledore says that the previous uh care for magical creatures uh professor uh is retiring with his remaining limbs (laughs) (laughs) yeah then when um buckbeak is gone and they don't have to execute him he tells Hagrid that he wants a cup of tea or a large brandy (laughs) yeah and then in the movie when Harry and Hermione come back from time traveling they're like we did it he's like did what (laughs) it's Dumblecoy he's so coy he's so coy the most coy in this movie at least yeah yeah I love him though uh, this movie, <laughs> I love, it introduces, like, a new student who, as far as I know, is unnamed. Yeah. And as far as I can remember, is only in this movie. Yeah. But I've, like, dubbed him, like, the ominous student, <laughs> where in the uh, divinations class, when Harry finds the Grimm in his teacup, he's the student who reads, like, the textbook definition of what the Grimm is, and he's just, like... The Grim is a symbol of death. Like, it will follow you everywhere. <laughs> He's in another scene in, like, the Great Hall when they're eating or something. Yeah, because they're talking about Sirius Black and how they can't catch him. And he's like, it's like trying to catch smoke. Like trying to catch smoke with your bare hands. <laughs> and, like, I think it's an ominous student. This ominous student. I like to imagine all the other kids are like, who the fuck is this kid? Like, he's really <laughs> creepy, right? Yeah. No, totally. Like, he just says really creepy shit all the time. <laughs> So next up for lightning round, uh, there's a part in the book where Draco, Crab, and Goyle, and someone else, I think, uh, dress up as a Dementor and come onto the Quidditch field to try to distract Harry and get him to lose the Quidditch match. Yes. It's hilarious because Harry actually casts a Patronus charm and, like, basically, like, knocks them all out. Yeah. And it's hilarious, and they get into, like, a ton of trouble. But this is, like, such a true Draco move. Yeah, but, like, also, like, they should have been, like... Like oh, I Slytherin know. should have been like expelled or like out of, out of the, tournament. The, the Quidditch tournament for that shit. Like I know. that should have been like so much more severe than how it was actually treated. Exactly. Uh, but that's it. That's it for lightning round. And the episode. And the episode. Thank you so much for continuing this journey through Harry Potter with us. We're loving it. We are. We're super enjoying it, especially right now during quarantine. It's like just the content that we like reading and talking about at this moment. Exactly. Um, If you'd like to find us online, we are on Instagram. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at cover to credits pod at gmail.com. Yes. uh, We'd love to hear your Harry Potter takes your hot, hot Harry Potter takes. Yes. uh, As to what you think about this book and movie adaptation. Also, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cover to credits pod. Uh, there you can, if you become a patron and support the podcast, you'll get monthly episode schedules. You'll get access to all of our bonus content, all of our bonus episodes, which we come out with relatively once a month. Yeah. And, uh, you'll also get priority, uh, recommendations for episodes that when, you know, we love getting recommendations specifically from patrons, we tend to prioritize those. So 
yeah, if you like the podcast and want to support it further, it's hugely important, especially since we don't do ads. And I think that wraps it all up. I think we are done with the third Harry Potter. Godspeed. Uh, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.